0: This is the target establishment. For a suspect, new for our victims. And remember, if there's a hazard or dangerous situation, move yourself to a position of comfort. 300 people went to the police. We saw about 1,200 little kids and found out that they were in fact trafficked and they were in fact slaves. These little kids were on this boat. They are not fed, they are abused beyond imagination. This is a girl. Whenever something like this comes, I imagine in my mind that girl is found. We have operations all over the world. Rescuing people from slavery, because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls, how old is she? Twelve. How much? Thirty. Yeah, yeah, I'm And force families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target: the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. Para yao going to But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Hey, good evening to you. Nice to be with you. JP, such a thrill to get to be here with this family of of weirdos, I guess Shane said. (laughs) That's all right. You know, I obviously don't know where all of you individually might be in your own journey of trying to follow Christ, get to know him, get to know the God who made you but I feel like I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long time, but I still find myself very much challenged by a really simple question, and that's simply this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? I mean, I know what I'm interested in, and you know what you're interested in, and We could probably make lists of all those things. But what if tonight, just for a moment, we just set all of those lists aside? And what if we asked from first principles, but what is God passionate about? What makes his heart just beat fast? In fact, could people know what God is interested in by what it is that we're interested in? Tonight, I would just like to spend a few minutes sharing about two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And that's first his passion for the world. Then secondly, his passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. Anybody who went to Sunday school, you would have learned John 3.16, right? That says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. What that says is that, is that the, art, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world, was motivated by God's love for the world. And by the world, of course, he doesn't mean the big, beautiful dirt clod that's the earth. It's the love for all the people. All these bazillions of people that are stretched across all these confusing continents and cultures. This is actually what God loves. He loves this great, big, huge world. Now, by contrast, what do I love? What am I interested in? Well, to tell you the truth, I am completely interested and passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me, like every day have to wake up in the morning like oh whoa Gary don't forget to think about yourself today you know (laughs) now my pastor does tell me this is more narrow than I should be so I'm trying to broaden my heart out a little bit right and and on a really good day I will actually find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the world who's in my family This is a pretty good day in my household, actually, where I'll extend more love and compassion to my wife and my four kids than I do to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar. And they pray it might happen again next year sometime, right? (laughs) And then I might have some, I don't know, larger spiritual experience, and I will find my heart beginning to grow. And I will find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the world that I like, and who likes me, and who is like me. And this then becomes my world of like passion and energy and focus, right? But it's this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I think Jesus probably finds this totally understandable. This is totally natural. But I don't think everything that's natural and understandable is necessarily godly. So maybe at least we here together tonight and all those, I guess, who are joining us online and so forth, maybe at least we together who are tuned in right now, we can agree at least upon what the goal is. And and our hearts may not be there yet, but isn't the goal to have a heart that's becoming more like the heart of God? That maybe shares something of his love and passion for the world? Now, this came home to me in an incredibly personal way. When I was not much older than than most of, of you, I was, in 1994, I was 31 years old, and I was a fairly new federal prosecutor working for the U.S. Department of Justice. But in 1994, this horrific genocide broke out in our world. Some of you might have heard about the Rwandan genocide of 1994. (laughs) Seen the movie Hotel Rwanda or something. In this little country that most of us had never heard about, this horrific genocide broke out, and about 800,000 people were murdered in about eight weeks' time. And when it was over with, the international community wanted to try to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice. And so I was sent over to be the director of the U.N.'s genocide investigation in 1994. And I was given a list of about 100 different mass graves and massacre sites. And it's interesting because all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And most of the bodies were actually in churches because the Tutsi minority had run to the churches for sanctuary. But then their Hutu neighbors just waded into them And just hacked them all to death. And so I would spend my days just sorting through thousands and thousands of butchered people. The worst part of it, though, for me, honestly, was having to interview the survivors. And especially these little kids who had survived some of these massacres. And I'll never forget, I I had to interview a little eight-year-old girl who had survived a massacre that had taken place in this church. And she had actually lay amongst the dead for about three days. Then she made her way out and she hid in the forest for a long time. And so I'm sitting down with her at this little table and she's just across the table from me and I'm trying to get her story out of her. And the first thing that I noticed about her was really the first thing you would have noticed which was really just how beautiful she was. She had these eyes that still somehow had this sparkle to them. And then she'd say something funny to make herself laugh. And then these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was just gorgeous. And I remember looking across the table at this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl when it occurred to me in a way that I had never honestly thought of before, that the maker of the entire universe at some point decided that this little girl should exist. And while he's making galaxies and all kinds of stars and suns all across, he's like, wait, 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 no way. I want to make this little girl. And not only do I want her to exist, but I want her to exist to be with me Forever. And I want this little Rwandan girl to be with me forever so desperately that I'm willing to give up my own son to have him tortured and murdered so that this little Rwandan girl will be with me forever. And suddenly I was just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. But I knew from the the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck, that she was just about a millimeter of machete blow from being part of just that huge pile of corpses we'd been sorting through outside the church. And then it occurred to me that 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as that little girl, they could just drop off the face of the earth one summer in 1994 And for me as an American Christian, honestly, it wouldn't impact my day at all. So as this 31-year-old, I just started to sense that there was a significant difference between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And I just didn't want to miss out on what mattered so much to my Heavenly Father. And so it's been this journey now for me to try to, open up the borders of my heart right beyond the shriveled world of just me and mine and try to share something of his love and passion for the world. But you know, it's been interesting because as you go into this world and you try to share the love of God with this world, what do you think is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, there's 10,000 kids who died in our world today. Why? Because their parents couldn't get them enough food. And so while those parents are watching their kids pass away from hunger, how somehow are they supposed to believe that God is so good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people on our globe who have no access to medical care? Right? They're not arguing about whether or not their medical plan will allow them to choose their doctor or not. Right, They'll never see a doctor. And so when their kids are hurting and they know there's medicine in the world, but for some reason they don't ever get it, like how are they supposed to somehow believe that there's a God that is so loving? Or there's hundreds of thousands of kids who woke up this morning on the streets of the big urban centers just abandoned and alone. How today are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? You ever think about this? And in fact, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good for those who are hurting so much in our world? Well, it turns out the answer in the Bible is a little bit surprising because it turns out that we're the plan. And that he doesn't have another plan. Jesus said one of the most extraordinary things in Matthew chapter 5 when he's speaking to us, his disciples, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works, and then they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this because you'll notice he doesn't say, you might be the light of the world. You could be the lie of the world. I hope you turn out to be the lie of the world. Jesus says to us, you're it. The Apostle Paul says something very similar that is so staggering. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal to the world through us. So anybody who woke up this morning, honestly, wondering about the significance of your existence, God Almighty has decided to put his reputation on the line through your life. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good. How do they do it? by going to people who are suffering and hurting and showing them the goodness of God. So if people are hurting because they've never heard that God loves them and that Christ died for them, we're the ones who actually get to go and share the good news with them. And if others are suffering because they don't have food, well, for heaven's sakes, we can go share ours with them. And if others are suffering because they don't have medical care, we can help them with that. And when we do these things, they see the body of Christ, which is what we're called, they see the body of Christ actually show up. And it becomes believable to them that God is good. But it's interesting because there's actually another kind of suffering in our world. And it's interesting to me because they're not suffering because they don't have access to food or doctors or medicine or shelter. These are the people who are suffering in our world because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These are what we call the victims of injustice in our world. Of course, I don't know about you, but I sort of feel like the world, I mean, the word injustice has become pretty useless, right? Because it means everything and nothing at all. And as an American, I pretty much feel like I'm a victim of injustice like every day, all day practically. Like I'm at the grocery store the other day and I'm always in the express lane right and I'm a very busy guy so I'm in the express line optimizing everything here so but there's rules about the express lane and I don't know what it is in your grocery store but in my grocery store big fat sign it says 10 items only so I'm there the other day I got my grocery cart and I got my 10 items guy in front of me 13 items He's totally jamming up the express lane, and I'm, I'm getting—he's totally breaking the law too. And I, I'm getting so mad, I want to sue the guy. Right? Now I'm a lawyer, and I could do this. So like, just do justice now. <laughs> well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about about the abuse of power, the abuse of power to take from someone else what God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone is stronger, abuses that power to take those things away just because they can, God calls this the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed. You might remember this Bible story when this king abused his power as king to steal another man's wife. And then he used his power to steal that man's life. And the prophet Nathan had to confront him for his abuse of power. But what does injustice look like in our world today? Well, we will all have some idea of that in our own community and in our own country, and our own state. Well, what does that look like in the world? Well, in 1997, three years after that experience in Rwanda, I and some friends helped form together this ministry called International Justice Mission, and we're a collection of criminal investigators and lawyers and social workers, and we take on individual cases of violent abuse and oppression. In the poorest communities in the developing world, and there 's now a thousand of these workers in the, wor- in, in the poorest par- parts of the world they 're local Kenyans and uh, Peruvians and Bolivians and Cambodians, and they are followers of Jesus and they are fighting for justice in in their own communities and Now, after twenty years, I have a pretty clear idea of what injustice looks like in our world, and i 'll never forget meeting this young boy in India named Kumar. Now, Kumar lived in a poor rural area, and at the age of five, his parents passed away. So he's left orphaned. And then by the age of eight, he finds himself sold into a brick factory as a slave. Not a metaphorical slave, actual slave. This is the way Kumar lives his life. He works seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, making and carrying bricks. There's about 70 other slaves that are held in this compound, and they are forced to work by the sheer force of terror. Even on days where Kumar was too sick to work, the owner would just kick him in the head and force him back to work. When people run away from the facility, they are chased down by the thugs that the slave owner uh, controls, And they are brought back and beaten in front of the others. So Kumar is clear about where he's going to spend the rest of his life. Do you know that there are about 14 million held in slavery in India alone in our world? Globally, there's about 40 million people held illegally in slavery, more than in any other time in human history. And so here's my question to you. How today is Kumar and 40 million people in slavery in 2018, how are they somehow supposed to find it believable that there's a good God in our world? How's that supposed to seem plausible? Or what about Alina? Alina I met in the Philippines when she was just 11 years old. She was also living in a poor community in a rural town when she was horrifically sexually assaulted. And the thing that made it so painful and brutal was that the man who committed the rape was actually the chief of police in her town. We work in communities in the developing world where there is just an epidemic of sexual violence against women and girls. Where up to 40% of girls will be victims of rape or attempted rape before the age of 14. And so how, again, is Alina, how are all of these other girls who just find themselves completely unprotected from such violent abuse, how are they supposed to find it believable that there's a God who loves them? Or what about Joti? I met Joti, likewise, in India. She lived in a, a rural village with her family. She's an earnest 16-year-old teenager trying to help as she can for the family to survive economically. And one day some women came to her and said, Hey, Joti, why don't you come with us to the big city of Mumbai? We can get you a job and a restaurant there, and you can send some of that money home. And so without telling her parents, Joy T. goes with these women. But on the journey there, they give her some tea that's been drugged. She falls unconscious, and she's not taken to a nice job in Mumbai. She's taken to the red light district and sold into a brothel for about 250 bucks. And she's stuffed into this underground room underneath the brothel and she's just beaten for three days with plastic pipes and electrical cords and metal rods until she's forced to provide services to the customers there. Joe T., this teenager, services about 30 men a day, seven days a week, never let outside of this brothel. UNICEF tells us that there are about 2 million children held in forced prostitution in our world. So the the question that would always just hit me is, how are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? In fact, how, how does God, this God that we worship here together, how does he regard all of this suffering and abuse? Well, fortunately, the Bible is not shy about talking about this. I love my Bible because it is real. And I remember being in Rwanda being knee-deep in these mass graves when I discovered Psalm 10, which I'm sure I would have read in church at some point, but it started with this question that I found just so powerful. Psalm 10 starts out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked man hunts down the weak who is caught in the schemes he devises. And then it goes on to describe so vividly what I was seeing in Rwanda. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victim. He, like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and the helpless and drags them off in his net. The victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. The Bible is really clear about the state of our world, but it's also clear about the nature of our God. And here's how the psalmist sums it up He says, You, Lord, the Lord is king forever and ever, the nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. We could go to scripture after scripture where it's clear God hates this kind of abuse and he wants it to stop. Psalm 35 says, oh God, who, are li- who is like you? You rescue the weak from those who are too strong for them. Over and over again, the heart of God is clear. He wants the abuse and the violence to stop. But that's just always raised another question in my mind, which is well, that's good news, but God, what's your your plan for actually doing so? And then again, the answer from the Bible that comes back to me is totally surprising because it turns out that we're the plan. And that God Almighty doesn't have another plan. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, he has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 says, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who take the Bible seriously, honestly, there can be no doubt that God has given to us, his people, the work of justice in the world. But notice our response, my response, when I find out that like, we're the plan for doing justice and rescuing the victims of violence and abuse in our world. It's like, okay, God, we're just brainstorming here. And like, no ideas are bad, but that's a bad plan. <laughs> so like, if we're pretty good at like, the evangelism and the food stuff, but like the violent part, like if we're not really into that, like what's plan B on that one? There's no plan B. We are it. But we feel so powerless, don't we? We hear these stories and these statistics, and we can feel just bolted to our chair with despair because we feel so powerless. And in those moments, I would just hope we could remember these stories from the Gospels when the disciples felt exactly the same way. And my favorite is the story of the feeding of the 5,000 You may have heard this story before, but it has a great beginning to it, I think, because Jesus has been talking for a long time. He's been teaching and teaching and teaching, and people are starting to get hungry and restless, and so the disciples go to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home so they can get themselves fed? Well, Jesus doesn't want to miss out on the fun of this particular situation, so he says to the disciples very clearly, no, no, guys, you feed them. Now, the part I love about the disciples is that they're always so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the situation. (laughs) And they say, oh, Jesus, see, there's 5,000 hungry people here. And it would take a half year's wages to be able to feed them. They get out the whiteboard and they're drawing, see, half year's wages, can't feed them. Back to you, super Jesus. What does Jesus to say? Pretty interesting. He says, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to bring what they do have, which according to the story is this little boy who's got a sack lunch that his mom had packed for him to go hear Jesus. And this little kid has this sack lunch that has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is presented as the corporate resources to be able to meet this massive need. And this is when the apostle Andrew enters the conversation. He's got a graduate degree from SMU or something. and Not a very good athlete, but he's really smart. And um, so he looks at the five loaves and two fish, and he says, what are these among so many? But see, honestly, this would have been me in the story. Because I went to college, and I took a math course. (laughs) And you've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish. And honestly, if you're as sophisticated as I am, and if you took the sociology course that I took, you'd really know that there's nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. (laughs) But what does Jesus say? He says, Give it to me. And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and he proceeds to feed 5,000 people to overflowing. Do you notice he didn't ask the disciples if they had enough? He didn't ask the disciples to do the miracle. You just ask them, what do you have and will you give it to me so that I can do the miracle? And can I just tell you this as your little bit older brother, that this is what I have seen Almighty God do tens of thousands of times over the last 20 years. That as we have presented to him our shaky little offering. Kumar's in slavery. Alina's in a place where she's being hurt. Joy T's being serially raped inside that brothel. And Jesus, we're going in. I have seen Jesus do the miracle tens of thousands of times. Because you know, Kumar is no longer held in that brick factory as a slave anymore. Our local Indian team of investigators were able to infiltrate that place. They were able to work with the local authorities, conduct a raid, rescue Kumar out, and all 70 of those people were held as slaves in that facility. And not only that, but get them enrolled in our aftercare program. So they now stand on their own two feet, providing for their own families as free men and women. Amen. And Kumar, it turns out, Kumar's brilliant. He actually went to school and came back to work as an intern for International Justice Mission. And he has helped us rescue hundreds of people from slavery. And what I can tell you is this. Kumar isn't wondering whether or not there is a good God. He knows there's a good God. And now he is bringing that testimony and that witness in word and deed to those in his community who are hurting. Likewise with Alina, she no longer just has to be trembling in fear somewhere that the bullies can just hurt her anytime, anywhere. IJM's local Filipino team took on her case and had that police chief not only removed from office, but he's now serving a life sentence for all the abuse that he was committing in that community. And now Alina has gone to college They've gotten a communications degree, and she's been one of the leading advocates fighting trafficking in her community. She mentors scores of young women as they walk through the difficult process of recovery from abuse. Because what does Alina believe? That there's a good God. Because she's seen it in the goodness of God's people. And likewise with Jo T., she's no longer being horrifically abused inside that brothel. Our local team in India was able to infiltrate that dark place, get her out, get her to a place of long term Christian aftercare. And then eventually she said to us, But you know, I know where other children are being held. And Jyoti led us back, back into that dark part of her city so we could rescue another seven kids out. One of them was a girl named Kalindi. And Kalindi said, Well, you know, I know where even more girls are being held. And she led us on a third police raid and led us to this underground dungeon underneath one of the brothels. And on this particular day, we were able to bring out of that dark place 24 of these girls who were in a place of just unspeakable abuse and ugliness. But on this day, they were brought out of that darkness. And why was that possible? It was because the body of Christ showed up for Joti, And then Jyoti showed up for Kalindi. And then Kalindi showed up for these girls. And so now they have an opportunity to actually know the goodness of God. This is the gospel showing up in the darkest places in our world where once there was a thought, God does not hear you here. But now they step into the light of knowing that there's a God who loves them. You know, if you and I think back about that story Mm. You think about that story of the feeding of the 5000. You ever think about like why did Jesus do that the way that he did? I mean, if he's God and he's teaching and everybody's getting hungry, I, I don't know, why didn't he just dump manna on everybody, right? Like poof, manna. Eat up and let's get back to the teaching, right? Like, why did he do it the way that he did? I think he did, did it the way they did for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. Because if you think about it, did he actually have to have the little boy's lunch in order to do the miracle? And yet the boy goes home to his mom at the end of the day, right? He says, Mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? Fed 5,000 people pretty much. Yeah. And yet what I also think is true is that boy could have eaten his own lunch. He would have had a very full stomach, but a very small day. And was that little boy the only person in the crowd of 5,000 who had had a lunch? Or is he just the one who was willing to offer it to Jesus? What does this suggest for you and me? Perhaps a new season of rediscovering God's love for the world. Perhaps a new season of rediscovering God's passion for justice. And can I tell you, one of the most extraordinary ways that you could do that, I believe, is something that is coming at the end of September, IJM, as I said, now has a 1,000 full-time staff around the world, those who brought rescue in all these stories we've heard. And they are all gathering together after 20 years to thank God for what he's done, to pray to him for what's coming, and to seek encouragement. And where in the world, after 20 years, are 1,000 of the world's most amazing Christian justice advocates? Where are they coming Dallas, Texas. On September 28th and 29th, we're gathering them together in something we're calling Liberate. All 1,000 of these amazing people, and we're just inviting all of our friends to come and pray with them and encourage them. There are teams like our team in Kenya who lost three of their number about a year and a half ago when they were defending a, a taxi driver who was being abused by the police, and they were trying to seek justice against them. Those police officers, they were putting them on trial. And then three of those of our staff found themselves abducted by those police and murdered, left floating in the river. And that team is taking on the fight about what it means to actually protect the common poor from that kind of violence. They're coming to Dallas. They're coming with those from all of these various countries that are engaged in this fight against violence and slavery. And you know what I would just so deeply love? is if the porch just showed up to love on them, yeah. to pray with them, to be with them. People from all over the country are going to come, but I think there's just some reason why they're coming here. So we're going to be in the uh, Dr. Pepper Arena in Frisco, and I would love to invite you all to come to, to Liberate. Be with us. We actually even have a, a, a promo code for the porch for you guys. To, to be Because as Shane says, you have no money. I get this. And so, <laughs> promo code. Come, I, y- you will just have your little socks blessed off by these people. And you will bless them. Pray with them, encourage them, worship Almighty God with them. See if it does not shake up your life. Because if you think about it, why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why have you and I been given so much? Do you ever think about this? By way of an answer, I, I would just close with this confession that when I was growing up as a young person, what I really wanted most in life was to be a professional football player. But I turned out to be a bad football player. And, uh, but fortunately, I had two older brothers who would sit me down, and they would tell me why I was a bad football player. And this is helpful in a weird way, I guess. But, so they say, well, Gary, you see, you're small, but you're slow. And so what I would do, of course, is I would go to the weight room to work out to right, try to get big just so I wouldn't get crushed so badly in a football field. And I'd work out in the weight room and nothing would ever happen to my body, but I would, I'd work out and work out. And I'd always look over in, my, in, in the section of my gym and there were always the bodybuilders. Do you have any of these guys in your gym? I mean, they're just, they're huge, right? I mean, oh my gosh, it's like chest and neck. Like, legs and like, arms, like, oh my gosh. And I used to just look at all that muscle mass and all that strength and all that power, and I used to just ask, but what's it all for? It's for posing. And the only time all that strength and power is ever really brought to bear is there's the crisis in the kitchen, right? And the jam jar stuck in it. And they pop open the jam jar. Ooh. In a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, may God not leave us opening jam jars, but may He rescue us from all things that are just too small. Rescue us from all things of fear and lead us with courage into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through the porch. Let's pray, let's pray. Almighty God, kind Father, thank you for the gentleness and the patience with which you allow us to know you more deeply and to know how much you love us and how you yearn to testify to your goodness into this world through us. So, Father, we ask that you would take some word of truth that is from you tonight and allow it to actually take root in our heart. We don't want to leave this place just exactly the same people who came in and yet there will be so much of an onslaught of distraction and things out beyond these walls. And so we just ask for each other, for ourselves, that you would help us to just take this one good step, whatever faithfulness it is, to just follow you in your love for the world and your love for justice. And may it all go, Jesus, to your glory and to your fame and to your salvation in the world. Amen.